following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large, level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea, uh, from Jerusalem, and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil, evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. Um, just to give a little bit, a bit of background and uh, context here, uh, if you remember last week, uh, Jesus had, been, had gone up on a, a mountain to pray uh, in the midst of great opposition in his ministry. Uh, he spends the whole night praying, seeking God, seeking kind of the next phase, the next unfolding of his ministry and he comes down uh, with with what I believe was God's plan that God revealed to him as he prayed and I think that plan encompassed two things one to call appoint the 12 apostles which he did Uh, and the second thing I believe was to preach to begin to train and equip those 12 and the first example we see of that is the sermon on the mount which is coming up next right Um, but sandwiched in between that are these, these three verses, uh, 17, 18, and 19, that would be super easy to skip over. And uh, uh, in fact, probably most of us you know, read through this passage and uh, you know, easily just bypass these words that don't really seem to add a whole lot other than giving maybe some geographical context. Um, this passage is not included in, in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what Matthew does and how he uses the Sermon on the Mount is quite different than Luke's purpose. Same message, same sermon, but different emphasis, different focus. Um, so, uh, so why is it that, what is it about 18 and 19, verse 18, 17, 18, 19 that's so important? Um, verses 17 kind of makes sense because again it explains the, how Jesus got to where he does to give the sermon. But verses 18 and 19 disclose them things that are that are interesting. And I think that if we were to jump into the Sermon on the Mount without understanding these things, we would greatly misunderstand what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And in fact, I think that a lot of people misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount because they do just that. Uh, If you read the Sermon on the Mount in either Matthew or Luke, uh, it's hard. Uh, Jesus calls people to a life that is very difficult. And the demands that he puts on us in the Sermon on the Mount are what a lot of people would say impossible. In fact, a lot of people, some commentators say it's so impossible that Jesus gave this, but he didn't really expect it to be followed or lived out until his millennial reign, right? That Jesus you know, knew there was going to be this gap of the church age and, he, and, and that the church clearly couldn't do this. Okay, that's some commentator's estimation of you, right? And that it's only until Jesus comes back that you could even remotely expect people to, 
to fulfill or to carry out the instructions of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think that that error in thinking comes from really misunderstanding this tiny little passage, this sentence that's wedged in before the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So it's really important, and we're going to spend some time looking at these very significant verses, um, uh, and and we're going to see why they are important. Um, Some context to to give us some more background. Uh, Luke 4, 8-19, Jesus Remember, he's in the synagogue teaching, and he is handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he, he reads this passage out of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And in these two verses, uh, specifically 18 and 19, we see this, this brief summary of Jesus' ministry as doing just that. That what Jesus' ministry is about is coming to set people free. Right? And, uh, and we'll see why that's important to get that uh, really in front of uh, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It really prepares us as we launch next week into a, a lengthy series going through the Sermon on the Mount. So let's see what's happening. Okay? First of all, the setting. Uh, Jesus is, at this point in his ministry, in spite of opposition, he is drawing crowds. Okay? He's making some people really angry, but he is drawing thousands of people who are interested in what's going on. And it says that when they came down the mountain, okay, which connects this passage and what's, what's about to happen with the sermon, with his time on the mountain in prayer. Okay? Luke is very careful to bridge and connect these events. And that's why I believe that uh, what he got from the Father was not only the calling to, to appoint the Twelve, but also, you know, he came down with sermon notes and PowerPoint in hand, right? And he is ready to deliver this really most famous of sermons, this, this huge message that he got in this night of prayer, right? And so he is excited, and uh, he's appointed the Twelve. And if you remember, uh, he'd been on top of the mountain. It says he came down a little ways and called up his disciples to him. So this crowd of disciples, not just the 12, but all those who had been following him, come up the mountain, not all the way to the top, but come up the mountain a ways, and somewhere up there on the mountaintop, he appoints the 12 apostles out of this group of maybe several hundred, maybe several thousand, we don't know, followers. People who had committed themselves at some level to Jesus' teaching, who had been ministered to him, who had an understanding of what he was about, and committed themselves to follow not just to follow him around, but to follow and practice his teaching, right? So, so you've got the, this crowd coming down. So they're coming further down the mountain. Jesus with the twelve, with this crowd of disciples, are coming on down the mountain. And as they're on their way down, again, Jesus got his PowerPoint, his notes, he's got his sermon. He is ready to deliver the sermon of a lifetime, right? But he's looking for the right place to do it because the hillside's steep, rocky. Maybe it's cold up there. I don't know. He, he's heading down, and it says... But he comes down to a flat place, okay? Uh, and Jesus, uh, throughout the Gospels, his, uh, the extent of his mis- ministry, or, or the scope of it, is measured by this, the piece of real estate he's on, okay? When he's on top of a mountain, it's just him and God. Comes down the mountain a little farther, it's him and his disciples. He goes down to the broad, flat place where he can accommodate a large crowd, and his ministry expands to the masses, right? So he comes down, 
to this flat place somewhere on the mount, on the hillside. And awaiting him there is a, another huge crowd of different people. Well, who are these people? Well, they're seekers. There are people who have not really encountered Jesus yet. They probably never heard him. Maybe they have never seen him. Uh, and they come looking for Jesus, uh, wanting to catch a glimpse of this guy and see what his ministry is about. Um, there's some debate, and you know, this in, in your Bible, it may be called the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Flat Place. It doesn't really ring. The Sermon on the Flat Place. I think it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, literally, it's the Sermon on the Flat Place. It comes out of this flat place. Uh, Matthew's the Sermon on the Mount. So the question is, was it on a mountain? Was it on a plain? Was it two separate sermons? Well, probably it's a matter of whose perspective you're looking at this from. Uh, Matthew's looking at it from the perspective of these seekers who have come from Jerusalem and all over Judea, from as far away as Tyre and Sidon. So that represents the religious center where the devout, seriously religious people are living in Jerusalem, all the way to the outer skirts of places like Tyre and Sidon, which was outside of Judea, um, was largely Gentile, and with a group of people that, that could have been mixed. They could have been Jews. They could also likely have been Gentiles. Right? And so this, this group gathers. Well, Matthew writes from the, the perspective of this group going up to meet Jesus. Luke's writing the perspective of the disciples coming down. Is it possible they met somewhere halfway in between? Yeah, very likely. Does it matter? Not at all. Okay, Wherever the sermon took place, doesn't really matter. You can call it whatever you want. Um, sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Jesus' most famous sermon, whatever. Okay, The point is, what's happening here as, as these two crowds mix. Okay, Jesus comes down, the crowds come up, he meets them in the middle. He is ready for phase two of his great... Um, you know, vision that God gave him, ready to preach this message, right? Uh, and he, uh, but now he's confronted with a new thing, okay? Because he had his 12, he had his, his followers, the ones that he's really now ready to prepare for ministry and to equip. But all of a sudden now he's got this crowd of newbies, right? This crowd of people who, you know, just met him, don't really know who he's about, Right? So, so what's he going to do? How is he going to deal with these new people? Um, option number one, turn around and go back up the mountain where there's not enough space for them all, right? Um, just walk through the crowd and, you know, go to some small little house, find a guest house somewhere and have a small mini conference with his disciples, right? Well, what does Jesus do? Well, he meets them in the middle and, uh, and it says in verse 18 that, uh, and it, it, gives the, it gives the purpose for why they came, the, the seeker crowd, okay? It says, the seeker crowd, they had come to hear him teach and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled, troubled by evil spirits were healed. Um, what Jesus does is he does, he does his ministry. He does what he had always done up to this point in his ministry. He meets the crowd. He doesn't turn them away. He doesn't say, hey, look, guys, you know, it's all, it's all cool. You're all, you know, excited about me, but I'm moving on to a different phase now. I'm in the discipleship mode, and you'll just have to wait because someday my disciples, I'll send them out, and, and they'll help you. In the meantime, go home. He doesn't say that, right? He, he meets them, and he does what he always did. He fulfills his ministry of what? Of setting the captives free, of setting free those who are oppressed, of bringing salvation, 
right? But notice how he does that. And notice what he does. The crowd comes, and what are they looking for? What is the crowd? You can look in your Bibles if you want, because the answer is there. Verse 18. What is the crowd looking for? Well, it says, They came to hear him and to be healed. They came with two specific purposes. And those purposes are characterized by Jesus' ministry and word and deed. Right? Um, first of all, and, and Luke puts this first, their first reason for coming was to hear him teach. To hear him teach. Um, and secondly, to be healed. And it's significant that Luke puts the hearing first. Um, oftentimes we get the, the idea that the crowds followed Jesus around because he put on a good show. And granted, he did put on a good show. Raising people from the dead always, you know, gets a great applause from the crowd. That's a big deal. Making blind people see, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to see that, you know. And we, we kind of get the wrong sense that the crowds are just chasing around this, this circus show, this spectacle of Jesus who could pull off these incredible miracles. Right? And uh, oftentimes when, when we talk about doing ministry in word and deed, we have this idea that word and deed ministry is kind of like this, that people are not going to listen to you, that people have no reason to pay attention to your message until you first do what? Earn the right to be heard. That's what we say, right? And we earn the right to be heard by doing deeds, by helping people, by giving them food or by um, giving them glasses or uh, tending to their dental needs. And we do all these things. We call that word and deed ministry. Now, is that bad? No. And is there some value in that? I think so. But is that what Jesus was doing? Was Jesus going around doing miracles because he knew that people wouldn't come listen to him otherwise. That he had to earn a hearing. Is that what's going on here? Well, I don't think so because it says the people's first reason for coming was what? To hear him, right? They were captured by his message. The reputation of his teaching was as powerful throughout Israel and Judea as his miracles. If you remember in Luke 4, 31 and 32, it says Jesus went to Capernaum, in a town in Galilee, and there and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath. Okay? So he's teaching regularly in Capernaum. Uh, there too, the people were what? Amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. His teaching alone stirred people up. People, people didn't need the miracles to be drawn to Jesus. They were captivated by his message. Because it was new and different and authoritative. Other places in the gospel says he taught with authoritative authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They come to hear his teaching. Okay, get that. It's an important part of the passage here, right? Jesus does not need to do miracles to draw a crowd. They are drawn simply by wanting to hear his message, right? Um, so, if that's true, then why doesn't Jesus just go on with his sermon, right? That's why they came, right? Um, why not just, you know, he's ready, got the PowerPoint, got the notes, ready to go, say, okay, you want to hear, hear me teach? I'll teach, right? Um, I remember back a long, long, long time ago, um, decades ago, uh, one of the things I used to be involved with once in a while was rescue mission ministry. Have, ever, have any of you ever done ministry or rescue mission? 
Me and Rick, the only ones. The rest of you, man, you need to get a life or something. Rescue missions are like these inner city uh, ministries that minister to homeless and street people and alcoholics, right? And uh, mostly what they do, the way it works is they give them a meal and a place to sleep at night, right? So they get a, a clean meal, they can take a shower, they get a bed, right? But uh, th- there is a price of admission, right? And before you get to that, doing that, what do you have to, what do you have to do? You've got to listen to the message, right? You've got to endure a sermon every night, right? So they would, they would get us hapless preacher types that were just desperate to preach anywhere to come and preach to these poor guys, right, before they could eat dinner, right? Well, Jesus could have done this, right? He could have, he could have said, eh, yeah, you want healing, but nah, we're going to do the preaching thing first, right? I'm going to make you pay, pay, then maybe if you respond to the altar call and you come forward, you make some kind of commitment, then I'll heal you. Right? But that's not what Jesus does. Right? In fact, he deliberately, I believe deliberately, postpones the sermon that he was prepared and ready to give right at that moment. But when he sees the crowd uh, who's, who's come seeking him, he postpones the sermon and he does what? He heals them. Right? He heals them first. Uh, he does the, the healing deeds. Right? Um, and clearly, clearly, he's not doing it so that they will listen to him. He's not doing it to draw the crowd. He's not doing it to earn a hearing. So the question remains then, why? Why does he feel the need to heal them first? Why was that so important? Well, I think if we take a minute and look at, at the healing and specifically the words that are used here for healing, we'll get a sense for why this order is extremely important to Jesus and why Luke includes these two brief verses, this one sentence, before jumping into the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at it. Uh, in, the, in these two verses, 18 and 19, the, the word heal, depending on your translation, is used three or four times. Uh, there's actually two Greek words that are used in these verses to describe the healing that Jesus does. Um, one word uh, is used in the phrase where it says, um, those tormented by evil sp- spirits were healed. Okay? The word there is the word from which we get the word therapy, therapuo, right? And it simply means to be cured. Right? So it's a word we would, be, we would use to say, I was cured of a cold, I was cured of cancer, right? I was cured of depression. I was cured of an anxiety disorder. It means to fix the problem, right? Uh, it's interesting, though, that he uses that word uh, specifically of delivering people from demon possession. Um, he doesn't say they were delivered from demons. He says they were cured from demons, right? Uh, as I said, I mentioned last week, uh, the demons, it says that they tormented them. That people were were deeply troubled by these evil spirits that had in, invaded their life, and, and uh, the the consequence or the result of this demon oppression was not physical, or at least not directly physical. Uh, it didn't cause them blindness or, or or to be crippled. It didn't cause them to be physically sick. Now sometimes the demons would throw them into fires or cause them to cut themselves, but that was really an indirect consequence. What was the direct consequence of these evil spirits? Well, it was, it was devastating emotionally. 
right? This dark, evil, oppressive uh, prison entombed them. And the result was emotional uh, depression and despair and anxiety and chaos. They were in turmoil, in emotional turmoil as a result of the oppression of these demons. So Jesus comes and he casts out the demons, he heals them, and he really, by doing that, cures them of all these emotional struggles and turmoils. Right? Uh, he ministers them, he, he, he restores their emotional order. And he does that, as, as we mentioned from uh, the quote from Isaiah, he does it by setting them free. He breaks the, the, the power of evil ones that are putting them in bondage. He tears loose those chains and he sets them free from the oppression of those dark, evil spirits. He, he frees them. Right? The other word that's used is used at the very beginning and the very end of, of verses 18. Um, it says, They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And at the very end, it's, at verse 19, it says, And he healed everyone. That's the same word. And that word is the word uh, iaomai. And it also can mean to cure or heal, but it has a, a broader or more holistic scope. It has the idea of to make someone whole or complete, um, to free them from errors and sins, and to bring about one's salvation. Right? It's a word that really has the idea of restoring one completely to God's original created design and purpose for their life. It's much more holistic, much more complete. In fact, it's a word, I like that, that it's, it's not just healing physically, but it's a healing that's so comprehensive it could be called one's salvation. Right? It, it's the restoring of the whole person and all their parts to wholeness and wellness of being. Um, they had come to be healed of their diseases. And Jesus, in his healing, is working to restore what is broken in their life. He is coming to break the damaging effects of sin, death, and Satan that have been wrought on their life. And a lot of it was in the form of physical healing. But it's a picture of something much greater. It signifies, really, God working, Jesus working salvation in their life. He is working to restore them to perfect wholeness, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, and every part of their being. Uh, he physically reverses the damaging effects of sin on the body. Emotionally, he turns depression and anxiety into hope and joy. Spiritually, he brings forgiveness and cleansing, uh, restoring them from death to life. Relationally, he's reconciling us and our broken relationship with God the Father, as well as reconciling relationships with each other. Right? That's that's the healing ministry of Christ. And it's signified in what he's doing here. Um, so why the order? Well, here's the deal. Get, get the picture of this. Jesus' healing is never connected with how one fulfills his teaching. Okay? He heals them first. Uh, he heals in order to save and and restore, no one gets saved through teaching. Okay? Get this. Okay? No one comes to Christ and receives salvation through our teaching. 
Now, does that mean we don't preach and proclaim the gospel? Well, we do. It is a message we proclaim. But the message we proclaim is not this. It is not the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? It is not saying, look, if you become a good person and you get your life together and you become like God and you love your enemies, then you have a shot at salvation. Jesus said, no, I can't, I can't go there. I can't explain. I can't give this sermon until they have first experienced my healing power, my ministry of setting them free in their life. Okay? It was vital for Christ that they were healed before they were taught. Okay, get that? Uh, it was vital. Because it has everything to do with what the gospel is. We are not saved by teaching. We are not saved by being better educated. We are not, we are not saved by understanding the stories of Scripture. We are saved by the healing work of Christ poured out in our life. Now, how do we come to that experience? Well, we do often through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the gospel. But it's the preaching of the word, of the work that God wants to do to heal and restore our broken lives, to set us free from the bondage of sin and death and Satan. Right? And so Jesus does that and he models that. And people are set free as the healing power of Christ works in their life. And notice this. Uh, it says at the end of verse 19, it says, And everyone who touched him... Uh, and everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. He healed everyone. Okay, there, It was very likely that there were Gentiles in this crowd. There were very likely overly proud religious Jews in this crowd. They were poor, they were rich. There were sinners, there were horrible people. Right? What was the condition of healing? Well, simply this, they just had to come to Jesus and ask for help. And he heals them all. See, it's a matter of grace. It is never, God's healing touch in our life, God's healing and saving power is never a matter of what we deserve or merit. It is always, absolutely, a free and generous gift. And so it says, Jesus, they come, and for all who come, with every need, he heals them. All, right? One and all. Um, and so, for Jesus, the teaching must wait, right? The teaching, the instructions of how a disciple and follower is supposed to live can never happen until a person has experienced the healing touch of Christ in their life. So he starts there. Um, one last a little observation I want to pick up from this verse. Uh, the end of 19, it says, everyone who tried to touch, everyone was seeking or trying to touch him because healing power went out from him. Um, Jesus healed all with one condition. That condition was that they had to come and find him. They had to come forward and seek out uh, a connection with him. You know, human touch is, it is, you know, when we, when we love somebody, we do want to give them a hug. We want to touch them, right? Uh, it says that the people uh, were seeking to touch him, right? Because healing power was flowing out from him. It's easy to read this and kind of get this picture that they have this idea of Jesus being like a, a lucky rabbit's foot, right? They get close, rub the rubby, uh, lucky rabbit's foot, and, you know, something magical will happen. They'll get good luck. I don't think that's what's going on here, right? 
They were drawn to Jesus. And they identified in him the source, not just of some power, but, but the source of power. That Jesus was not just doing some kind of incantations to tap into somebody else's power. It says they, they recognized that, that healing power was coming out from him. That he was the source of life-giving power. That it was by his own being and by his own person that, that people were being set free from the things that had held them in bondage and captivity. And they wanted to touch him. They wanted to get close enough to reach out and grab hold of him. And the word there for touch doesn't just seem mean a casual glancing touch. It means to grab hold of. It can mean to cling to. It can be used to describe a very close, intimate, personal touch. Right? How do we get healed by Christ? How do we come to have the saving work of Christ then in our life? Well, the only condition that Jesus puts out is that we have to seek him to come to him with our brokenness, realizing we need that healing power, and touch him, right? Grab hold of who he is as a person, draw near to him, uh, and, and, and access his healing power, right, to draw near him. Jesus healed in many contexts, and it's true. Some will say, well, yeah, but there were cases where Jesus healed long distance. He did heal long distance, But Jesus never healed in a way that was impersonal. Even when he did it long distance, it was always his personal touch, his personal involvement, a personal connection that brought healing into people's lives. How do we get saved? We get saved because we seek out that touch of Jesus in our life. We recognize we are in bondage, we are broken, we are in captivity, and we come to him recognizing he is the flow, the volcano of saving power. And if we want salvation, we've got to we've got to grab hold of that. We've got to get near the person of Jesus. It's not just a doctrinal formula, it's not just an empty prayer. It's Jesus himself who brings us salvation. And of course ultimately as we understand the rest of the gospel message, we know that He does that not just through power that he channels as the creator of the universe, but he does it through the power that sent him to the cross to break the power of sin over our life and through his blood to wash and cleanse us, to bring complete and whole and final cleansing into our life. Um, So how how do we sum this all up? Let me wrap it up this way. Um, I, I really believe that that, uh, that it's significant, this order. That it teaches something about what the gospel is. The gospel is a free gift of God. His saving work is something God does in our life with only one requirement. Not that we become a good person. Not that we understand the Bible. Not that we have great theology. It only requires this, that we go to Jesus recognizing that he is the source of power that can fix us. And we grab hold of him. Right? Uh, fast forward, it means going and, and recognizing the power that he displayed on the cross to pay for the penalty of sin and all its damaging effects and to rise again to new life, conquering sin and death. Right? We grab hold of that. We latch onto that power. We access it through personal connection with Jesus. Then, as we'll see next week, Jesus launches into the sermon. Right? And in the sermon, he lays out, once you have been 
the recipient of this compassionate, powerful working of God in your life, and He's healed and touched you, right? It's not something we hang on to selfishly. We now have an expectation and demand that that gift puts upon us to live differently, right? And the demands are quite high, right? But it's something that we can do because we have received this incredible gift from God that enables us to pass that on and love people as God loved us, right? So, so he will preach the sermon, and he doesn't hold back. And he lays it out, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we're going to look at that. Um, as we sit here this morning, uh, I hope, first of all, that we understand that the salvation he offers is, is for the whole person. Ultimately, spiritual salvation, our, our spirit that is dead in sin, brought to new life in Christ. Uh, in this story, you know, it's true that many who receive physical healing never took the next step to receive the further salvation and healing that Jesus offered. Many who were crippled walked, but were still spiritually dead. Some who were delivered from demons and set free from that oppression were still under the the deadly penalty of sin because they never came to the full place of deliverance. Jesus wants to rescue, heal, and save the whole person. And he's doing that in your life. And if you've come to him... Every area of your life that you know is broken, that you know is in bondage, that you know is, is under uh, the oppression and chains of, of whatever it is, Jesus wants to heal all that. And for us, you know, one of the questions in all this comes, you know, is this healing that Jesus offered only spiritual, or does Jesus also intend for us to experience physical healing? Uh, and oftentimes, you know, we pray for it, and it just doesn't happen. And we kind of give up and we say, well, you know, Jesus did that, but his healing work now is more limited. It's only spiritual. Well, I don't believe that's true, and I think that's misunderstanding what Jesus wants to do. I'm convinced Jesus does want to heal the whole person. But here's the deal. Jesus is far more concerned with your heart and your soul than your body. He wants to do the greatest work in the areas of greatest significance, which is our heart. And sometimes he will allow physical suffering and brokenness and pain because of the work that he knows it will do to heal and restore us spiritually and in other ways. Looking out here, we've got this morning two guys in arm slings. It's kind of scary and kind of weird. Um, Do our bodies get broken? Yes. Does Jesus always heal that? No. Does he heal it sometimes? Absolutely. Right? when it serves his greater purpose of healing the whole person. Um, I just got a, a, a message on Facebook uh, yesterday, actually, from a friend, a longtime friend who I went to Bible college with, who's dying of cancer. He's been through all kinds of treatments, and this is what he writes. Uh, Doctors have been wrong before, and we have heard of people overcoming odds that were against them. I've had eight cycles of chemo, and have not, it has not deterred the progression of my lymphoma. Six cycles of something else I can't even pronounce. <laughs> and two more cycles of rice, whatever that is, at the, at the hospital. And it did not work. So now they are prescribing two more pills, two more cycles of a pill to take once a day. 
the expert doctor from uh, some hospital told me that this pill has about a 30% chance of working, which means that if it does not work, then I may not with you be with you all here on Facebook or in this world as soon as two months from now. Liver failure looms on the horizon. I have been miraculously healed before, and I believe that the Lord can do it again if it is his will. I have come within an inch of dying at least six times before in my life, so why should this illness take me now? If you are a healer, then may all your healing power flow to me now. I have not hiked my favorite hike up to Angel's Rest this summer. I want to climb the north ridge of Stewart again. There's so much more harvesting of spiritual fruit to do among my beloved family at my church. I want to grow my hair back and work out at the gym and get in shape for hiking. I want to see the Seahawks win the Super Bowl, which would be a miracle, maybe. (laughs) Sorry, Seahawks fans. Um, It seems too soon and too short of all that I desire to accomplish. But the Lord seems to be calling me home. I'm going in the joy of an inheritance that infinitely surpasses all that I bury in this world along with this mortal body. Will God heal him? I don't know. I pray for my friend. Uh, Will God heal him? Absolutely. Right? But the final healing requires death. Right? He won't really receive the full and complete glorious healing that God has for him until he does, at some point, go to the grave and like a seed be planted in the ground so that he can grow up to be an invincible eternal tree of life, right? That's the work that God is doing. Uh, He wants to heal you. It is a lifelong process. And oftentimes he allows emotional, physical, spiritual, economic, social, relational problems in our life. The difference is this. For those of us who have gone to Christ and who daily go to Christ and are seeking to touch Him, are seeking to be close to Him and understand the incredible life-giving power that flows from Him, when we know that sickness, depression, problems, hardships are never seen as an obstacle because we know what? God is healing us. He is working in our life. He is working out His salvation in our life. And these seeming setbacks are just that. They're just setbacks to produce in us the greater healing work that he is absolutely accomplishing in our life. The worst thing we can do is to stop coming to to his presence, right? To to get frustrated and let go of him, right? Uh, The healing flow comes when we have a hold of him. You know, seek him. Seek him out, right? Trust him and his goodness and his saving work in our life. That whatever you're dealing with, right? Whatever seems to be not going away in your life, God's working in it and he's using it to produce the greatest possible healing in your life. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.